Amen. It's good to be with you and good to sing. We are changing up, if you, if you hadn't gathered already, a little bit of our order of service this morning. So if you're sort of taking a deep breath being like, we've only been here 10 minutes and the sermon is starting, we're going to have the sermon and then we're going to participate in the Lord's table as a response to what we heard. And, and during uh, the remembrance of the Lord's table and after, we're going to have more opportunity to lift up our voices together in singing. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our series that's working our way through the epistle of the Galatians that's been entitled, Faithfully Following the True Gospel. And the reason for that is there, there are many false gospels in our world. Even ones that churches who claim to follow Christ preach. It's been part of our year-long series, an emphasis on growing in faithfulness. There are all kinds of ways that you can think about faithfulness. For example, you might think about dependability of family or friends and, and, and know what that is to be dependable, to be faithful. You might think about your automobile and, and wish that it was more faithful, wish that it was more dependable, which means that you're probably a Ford owner. Kind of surprised we didn't lose more people during that. <laughs> We've been working our way through Galatians this year as a church because as we transition, we want to remind ourselves of being faithful to our heritage, faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've been working our way verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And, and this morning, as we've been hinting at and moving around, today we come to the, the core of what this gospel message is, that we are justified by faith. And what we'll see here is that we're called to refuse to rebuild what has already been torn down. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to follow along with me as I read from Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, and we're going to read all the way through to the end of the chapter. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Again, you'd have to go back to the earlier sermons to understand what he's talking about. It's part of the, the larger argument that he's making. He's a Jew and, and not a Gentile. Verse 16, and yet he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, and we'll talk about what that word means, by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. If you're confused by that verse, don't worry, Lord willing, we'll unpack it. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's the word of the Lord. This morning we're looking at what does it mean to be justified by faith, refusing to rebuild what was torn down. And I think it's pretty clear, it's pretty obvious by a plain reading of the text that if you're trying to earn your salvation, Paul says it is impossible. And that needs to be said because right now, even all over the world, men and women are trying to earn their salvation. They're trying to appease God or some sort of small g God or goddess, and they're, they're trying to make things right with them so that they can be entered into heaven. I do believe that there's just something deeply satisfying in the, the nature of a human's heart that trying to earn their salvation. They find, we find, a bit of joy in doing that, knowing that they were somehow checking a box. And I also think that there's something deeply satisfying in trying to protect salvation, to be like, well, well, only certain people who do certain things, only they can be saved. So if they commit this certain sin, then they're out. Behind that kind of humanistic logic and thinking is something very sinister. Paul puts it this way in our text. We know that a person, that they cannot, they are not justified by the works of the law. Why? Because by the works of the law, no one can be justified. In one very real way that was not new to the Jewish audience, and it it should not be new to us as well. If if they knew their Bibles and had read their Bibles, they would have known passages like Isaiah 64, verse 6, that says, We all have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds, just get the picture there, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and all our iniquities, like the wind, they take us away. Just pause and consider that for a moment. The best works that you've ever done, we're not even talking about the sinful ones here for a moment, but the best works that you've ever done, well, the ESV just puts it in a way that we can read it in church this morning. They're like polluted garments. The actual picture is quite grotesque. The most loving thing that you ever did, apart from Christ, is considered a polluted garment. In one way, the the human mind, there is the logic of, if I do good, I will get saved. I think it makes a lot of sense to us. It comforts us. When when we see evil around us in the world, we gain a a bit of satisfaction and superiority. When we see evil people living evil ways, we go, they can't be saved. And what Paul is declaring and reminding to us is that it is not your good deeds that save. He uses the word in our text, justification. Justification. Now, let me make sure that we understand what this word means here really quick this morning. Justification shouldn't be confused with forgiveness, 
which is the fruit, it is the result of being justified, nor with atonement, which is the basis and the means of justification, rather what is justification, it is a favorable verdict of God, of the righteous judge, that the one who formerly stood condemned, that would be you, that would be me, has now been granted a new status at the bar of divine justice. It's, it's a legal term. You, you are declared righteous, and we'll get to this here in a moment, because of your standing in Christ Your status was you were guilty and now you are innocent because of what Christ did for you on your behalf. And the way that Paul goes about arguing this point that that you cannot be saved by your own deeds, that it is impossible, is, is he lines up three logical arguments of why you cannot be, why it is impossible to save yourself on the basis of good works. And the first one is, and I recognize and understand, a bit confusing. He says, if you could save yourself, if your works could save you, Christ then, Christ is a servant to sin. He puts it this way in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant to sin? Certainly not. Don't miss the the certainly not. Paul is using a rhetorical question, making an argument to, to drive his point home. He is not saying Christ is a servant to sin. He's highlighting that if you follow the logic of the Judaizers that we've been learning all about, then what you're making out Christ to be is a servant to sin. You say, well, why would that be? How could he make that argument that's not placed in here? Well, take, for example, in John 14, verse 6, where Christ declares this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we now say that we have to follow the law and then Christ as well, then what that means is Christ was totally and completely wrong. Because Christ here in John 14 and elsewhere, he makes pretty exclusionary claims. You want to come through the Father, you have to go through me and me alone. It wasn't going through him plus the law. It was Christ and Christ alone. He had said and he proved and he demonstrated he was the Messiah. But by saying that you need Jesus plus the law, you were saying that Jesus is wrong. And that all that he taught about salvation was wrong. And if he was wrong, then Christ himself is a slave to sin as well. So Paul uses that sentence to highlight the utter absurdity of the point that you could somehow save yourself based even on the testimony that Christ had given of himself. Uh, That's the first argument. The second argument is that if you rebuild what was torn down, you become a transgressor. For if I rebuild, Paul says in verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
Again, just try to lock on to the logic for a moment. I know it can be sometimes hard to think that way. Christ tore down. He destroyed the old system. And, and how did he do that? He did it by perfectly fulfilling all that the law demands. He makes it clear in a number of places, but one, the Sermon on the Mount. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill every righteous demand that the law makes. Because deep down, that old law, it was never able to save, and it was never meant to save you and me. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in verse 10 of chapter, verse 1 of chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow, just think of all that you know of the law, it is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices, the same obedience that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. So if Christ came and he fulfilled the old law, what Paul is saying is that he tore that system down, and if you are trying to rebuild that system... That makes you a transgressor. If you're trying to build down what Christ tore down, you transgress. Now, before I go too much further, I do at least want to say a word about the law and, and to make sure that, that we are on the same page. We've been talking about the, the means how a person is saved. And what the Judaizers taught was an obedience to the Mosaic law plus Christ. But that was never the function of the law. John MacArthur puts it this way. The law is important as a mirror to show us our sinfulness. It can only reveal sin. It cannot remove it. See, the Jews that we've been talking about they wanted to remove the sin that they had by following and obeying the law, by, by doing their own good deeds. And what Isaiah told us was that was filthy rags. It's kind of like using pasta sauce to do your laundry. No amount of marinara is going to make that shirt white. The law function. The law's function has never been to save someone, but to reveal how badly they needed to be saved. Timothy George, in his commentary, puts it this way. The law itself, by revealing the inadequacy of human obedience and the, the depth of human sinfulness, it sets the stage, as it were, for the, the drama of redemption, affected by the promised Messiah who fulfilled the law by obeying it perfectly and suffering its curse vicariously or in our place. So, so then, is the law bad? That, that, that's a logical question. In fact, Paul would pick up on that logical question elsewhere. Is the law bad? And the answer is not even close to it. 
The law is good. It's not only this mirror that reflects and shows us how bad we are, but it shows us how we ought to live. There are Christians who want to take these verses and take these concepts and they want to throw out all sorts of righteous living. That's called antinomianism. And that's just as problematic and just as sinful as legalism. Christ's fulfillment of the law doesn't mean that we get to live however we want to live. It it means that he fulfilled its righteous demands for us so that we no longer need to fear the judgment of the Lord. Let me make this maybe with a metaphor or point here for a moment. The value, the function of the law and its good ways. How do you know if a stick is crooked? How do you know if your stick is crooked? You find a straight one and put it next to it. Many in the church want to throw away the measuring rod. That is not what Paul is doing at all. We need to know what is right and wrong and and how to live our lives. But the argument of the text here is that no amount of right living is ever going to be able to save you. Because your right living in the eyes of a holy God are polluted rags. And so I think it's appropriate, it's Oftentimes, a good time to ask ourselves, are we trying to earn our own salvation? When we think about the reason for obeying the Lord, are we trying to earn his favor, earn his merit, earn our credit with him? And if the answer to that is yes, then we have to change, and we'll see where we get to that in a moment, we have to change why it is that we choose to obey So if you're following with the logic here, what Paul's overarching argument is, it is impossible to be saved by works of the law. And the first one is that if you were able to be saved by the works of the law, then Christ is a slave to sin. Most certainly he's not a slave to sin, so therefore you cannot save yourself. Argument number two, Christ tore something down. You, by trying to be saved by the law, you're trying to build something up and that makes you a transgressor. But his third argument is almost the most important and the most powerful of them all. Because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. He says in verse 21, he died without purpose. He concludes his argument here with a powerful point. If you can earn it, his death means nothing at all. Many folks today, they love to say positive things about Jesus They'd like to latch on to certain aspects, not all, but certain aspects of his moral teaching. Love thy neighbor. You who is out sin, you throw the first stone. The world loves to lock on to these teachings of Jesus. But if all Jesus is is a profound moral teacher, then his death And his burial and his resurrection, they did not fundamentally alter all of human history. 
Paul's saying it, either Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it is the, the turning point of all human history, and it provides a, a way for humanity to be saved from its sinfulness, or it's utterly useless. You cannot have it both ways. Again, I think the application for us is kind of simple for each and every one of us here today. Uh, when it comes to your understanding of salvation and, and how you live, are you trying to, in one way or the other, earn it? Are you trying to say, if I, if I just kill off enough sin, then God will love me more? If I, if I can just be a little bit better than my neighbors or a little bit better than the person in the pew sitting next to me, then God will love me. Do you have embedded deeply in your heart that if I can just check some boxes, go to church, serve in particular ways, then, then I will arrive at favor with the Lord. The overwhelming argument of this passage is pretty clear. There's nothing that you or I could do to be saved. Because if you could save yourself, then Christ was a liar. What he tore down, you are rebuilding in vain. And ultimately, his death was for no purpose. And if his death then was for no purpose, Paul would pick up this idea and this concept elsewhere when writing to the Corinthians. And he would say, if his death had no purpose, then your faith, it is futile. You are still in your sins. And we... The church, we are a people who are to be pitied the most. I hope that by working through this passage together, and I understand that some of the logic can be hard to grasp, but, but I hope that what it is doing for those of you who are in Christ, it is, it is sharpening your faith. But I also hope that as you have encounters with others who don't understand that salvation is by grace through faith, that you're going to be able to clearly articulate the path of salvation. That if somebody comes up to you and they don't know what it is to be saved, that you would be able to at least even use this book up to this far and lead someone down the path of righteous salvation why? Because let us not ever confuse for a moment the difference between attending an evangelical church and the work of doing personal evangelism. Francis of Assisi, you might have heard of him before, he said this, that preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. He got it completely wrong. In the preaching of the gospel, we will always have to use words. And my hope and my prayer for you, Berean, is that by walking through these passages, that you will one day, if you don't feel that you're there, you will be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Because ultimately what we can see from this passage is that you can only be justified by faith in Christ. It's always been by faith that the people of God has been saved. From time to time you talk to people and they have a wrong understanding of this. They think that something changed at each different stage in the Old Testament, that there was different ways of being saved. Now, that's not it at all. It's always been by faith that we have been saved. It's only when the mystery of the revelation of Jesus Christ that the object of one's faith has come clearly into focus. 
It wasn't that we went from works righteousness to by faith. It's always been by faith that the people of God have been saved. Paul makes it clear here in verse 16. It's through faith in Jesus. That that is the object that we have believed in Jesus. Why? In order that we might be justified. In order that our standing before God might be changed from, from guilty to righteous. Now that faith in Christ, we've been using that word a lot, that that faith is not like believing in the reality of the moon landing or believing in the reality of the civil war or or believing in the reality of, well, sometimes I use those sermon introductions that have history, stories, and facts. It's, It's not believing in those things at all. It's saying that you've placed your trust. It's not believing in the reality, you certainly have to do that, but that you trust in these things. All around the world, people are trusting in something in order to be saved. And what Paul says is the only way to be saved, the only way to stand before God righteous is by placing your trust in the finished work of Christ. Most clearly, theologians call this the, the doctrine of penal atonement, substitutionary, substitutionary penal atonement. Meaning that, that Christ died in your place and, and bore God's wrath for you. Isaiah 53 would put it this way, but he, that is Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. And, the, and sometimes people don't like this language. They, they, they say it's too strong to think of Jesus. It is the very words of Scripture. He was, he was crushed. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And, and we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. To have faith in Christ means that Jesus stood between the wrath that God pours out on sinners righteously. And he did that in your place. And part of the reason that people want to minimize this idea and this understanding of God's wrath being poured out on Christ or being poured out in sin is they want to minimize the cause and they want to minimize the effects of sin. We see that all around in our world, in our society, uh, trying to minimize what the Bible calls evil. The evils of adultery, the evils of lying, you you name it over and over, they want to minimize evil. Jesus makes this clear right after some of his most famous words in John 3, 16. And, And this is judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. Why does the world love darkness? Why does it want to minimize it? Because if we can minimize how bad sin is, then we can ultimately minimize the fact that you don't need a Savior. But sin remains a big deal. One act of defiance by Adam and Eve plunges all of humanity out of their relationship with God and into death. And so, Paul is reminding us here, telling us here, that by trusting only and solely in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ can we be saved. 
Elsewhere he'd put it like this in Romans chapter 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God. You and me, we can be saved from the wrath of God by, by trusting solely in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on the cross. And because of that, then Paul can say things like, through the law, I died. He died, meaning because you are in Christ, the law has no power over you to your death because you were crucified with Christ. Church, let us see then that by adding things to the gospel or taking things away, not only do we offend the giver of life, but we confuse and distort this message. If we add to or, or take away what people need to be saved, then we're saying in essence that, that Jesus' sacrifice in one way was not enough. To be crucified with Christ means that you are found in him, and it is in him that you can only be saved. I think if, if you find yourself in Christ here this morning, and we've already talked about some of those implications about sharing the gospel, I think that there, there are two more that I want to draw our attention to here this morning. And the first one is this, that, that if you're in Christ, that you should not carry your head too low. You were set free from the curse. You were set free from the law and, and the guilt and the shame that comes from your, your previous life before Christ. You are free from all of those things. To be crucified with Christ is the same as being dead to the law. And this means that then we are free. We're free from the curse and, and the guilt of the law. And by the, this very deliverance, we are set free to truly live to God. Beloved, I hope that if you have lived a painful life before coming to Christ and that you've trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection to be the only thing that can save you, that, that if you have a past that, that you are ashamed of and you feel guilty of, that you would see that, that Christ has handled your sin and you need not fear but all you have is the warm embrace of your heavenly Father. That's not a license to sin, but it is a demand that you live in light of the gospel. And the other application is kind of almost on the other end of the spectrum for a moment, and it's that, that we would live in humility because of what Christ has done for us. The point being that, that you, were, you were so sinful, you were so bad, that the only remedy of your sinfulness was that the perfect, spotless Son of God had to die in your place, and nothing short of that would ever save you. You, you were that bad. And if you have that view in your heart of how bad you were, then that will create in you a humility. And because that humility exists in your life, when, when people point out challenges and you see your own defects, then you will not try to defend yourself against God's judgment by trying to offset your sin by your good deeds. Now, let us see here that it is impossible to be saved by works of the law. 
You can only be saved by faith in Christ. And that by placing our faith in Christ, that, that will either create in us and should create in us a humility, but also a firm confidence for what he did for us. The result of all of us, all of this then, is that we have a union with Christ. We have a union with Christ, and, and that union with Christ should transform you. Because you were dead, you were crucified, you were raised to new life, and all of this, it was done for a reason, and that reason was so that you might live to God. We'd seen this hinted at before, but Paul is trying to tie all of these things together for us. The, the purpose of salvation, the purpose of dying was that it's no longer you who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, Berean, I think that the implications for this are just endless for our lives here this morning. For those of you who are redeemed, it is not your life. Just kind of think about the logic of all of this here for a moment, what Paul is saying. Uh, let me give you a metaphor, an illusion. Just, just imagine for a moment you are homeless. And you are living on the streets. You, you have no food you barely have a scrap of clothing to cover your nakedness and your shame. And, and what you do have, it's, it's filthy. You have no place to lay your head. You're, you're sick and sore. You aimlessly wander from place to place, just trying to find something, anything. And then out of nowhere, apparently, a generous benefactor comes your way. In fact, it's no other than... Just go ahead and insert one of those really famous billionaires that we have today. You know, the guys who have nothing better to do than develop their own rocket program. And he says to you, in your shame and in your neediness, he says, I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to feed you. I will house you. I'll take care of your sickness. I'll provide for all of your needs. And all I need from you is first that you would just trust. Trust me that I will do this. And then I want you to live for the purpose that I give you. You got that situation in your mind? Homeless, destitute, dying. And he says, I'm going to provide. Does he get to call the shots in your life? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. But how often do we act that way? As Isaiah has a stinging indictment for us. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. It's quite a stinging indictment against us. You were saved. You were redeemed with a purpose. And that purpose was to live for the one who died for you. And often... We fail to do that. Now, the only way that we can do this to, to allow for our union in Christ to transform us, it is an act of our will. He has set you free. He will give you the power that you need by his Holy Spirit. But there is a breaking of your own independence with your own hand 
surrendering to the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. No one can do this for me. I must do this for myself. So if you find yourself here today being a Christian, someone who has been justified by faith, is it clear in your life each and every day in every single way that that you're living for him? That your union with him has totally transformed every aspect of your life. Maybe one last illusion here this morning. Just kind of looking out over the crowd. I see that there are many people here who are married. You were united to another person. And there's no other relationship in the Bible that is described that way. As you're united to a person as you are united to your spouse. When you were united to your spouse, everything changed, right? If the answer to that is no, let's talk after the service. You might need my counseling services. Of course, being united to a person, everything radically changed. Believer, if there has not been radical change in your life, then something is wrong. Either you're truly united to him and you have not chosen to live the way God calls you to live, or perhaps you are not united at all. A non-Christian, there's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. The only way to be saved is to trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. No amount of moral living will ever get you there. There is one person who can save you from the coming judgment, and that person is Jesus Christ. And he paid the price, and he paid it at the cross once and for all. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we rejoice at the good news of salvation by your Son, Jesus the Christ. That there is nothing that any of us ever had to do All we had to do was believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and our union with Christ would change us forever and we would live for him. And so I pray, Father, that for those of us who've trusted in Jesus, that we would see that no amount of moral or righteous living will will ever earn your grace. But Father, that is by trusting in your Son alone that we are saved. For those who don't know you, Father, I pray that they would hear this message and hear it clearly, that there might be people even today who come to know Christ. We ask this in your Son's most precious and holy name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.